Hi friends, and welcome to Robcast number 20. Can you believe it's 20? And I have been looking forward to doing this Robcast for so long because I have a guest with me, somebody you're gonna get to know, a true brother from another mother, the one and only Alexander Shia is in the house. Hi, Alexander. Hi, Rob. Years, Hi, everybody. <laughs> years ago, I read a book called The Hidden Power of the Gospels, and it absolutely blew my mind. Like, it was one of those books. You know when you come across something that's so good, you're almost upset that you hadn't heard it before? And um, I eventually tracked down Alexander, who was the author, and um, we've had correspondence, we've had meal together, and I'd always thought, now this is somebody who uh, my people, my tribe, all of you who listen to the Robcast, you have to meet him. So now I feel like I'm introducing friends to friends, and this could get really interesting. Okay. So... Um, Alexander, let's start in on this idea of quadratus. And I think maybe the best thing would be to like give an overview of the idea that is the basis of the book. The book is called The Hidden Power of the Gospels. It's been reissued as Heart and Mind. Yes. And, Heart and Mind, The Four Gospel Journey for Radical Transformation. And so it, the book is so good, it has two different titles. The Hidden Power of the Gospels or Heart and Mind. And so I'm thinking the best thing would be to, is to you just give us the idea, the, the fourfold idea. Then I'd love to talk about your story because I find your upbringing and some of the stories you've shared with me, like about your grandma, so fascinating. And then from there, we'll just riff and it'll get crazy. All right. All Sound right. good? All right. So there are, these, there are these four questions at the heart of the idea. Yes. Is that where do you start when you introduce people to this idea of quadratus? Where do you start with the four questions? I start with the four questions, and basically what I'm describing is that each gospel, the way I'm seeing that each gospel is written to a question. So it's the life of Jesus, but it's the life of Jesus in a question. And Matthew, I call the the text of how we face change. Mark, how we move through suffering. John, how we receive joy and know the meaning of joy. And Luke, how we serve, how we mature in service. But these, because you're an, trained as an anthropologist. And a psychologist. And a psychologist. These questions are fundamental human questions. Maybe we'll, let's start there, then let's work our yeah. way to the Gospels. Yes. Tell me about these four fundamental human questions. Well, first in anthropology and then in psychology, I discovered every system is circumambulating these four questions. And uh, yeah, they're, they're walking around. It's like you've got, you've got, thank you for awesome word. Circumambulating, yeah, word of the day, everybody. Circumambulating, walking around these questions. And whether you're, whether you're studying a, a rite of initiation in anthropology or whether you're studying a psychological method, it's basically moving you through these four questions. They're everywhere. And I, and I always know, I mean, I started hearing about these four questions in the late 60s. And, I, and immediately I said, Does, do these four questions have a relationship to the Gospels? Why do we end up with four Gospels? And psychology and anthropology is constantly talking about these four questions. Why were these questions circulating in the 60s? Well, for me, because I was studying anthropology. 
and I, my area of anthropology were the great rites of initiation worldwide. And every great rite of initiation has got four movements or four questions. It's like a, four is sequence. Four is like built into the human experience. It's built into the human experience. We got four seasons. We got four directions. We got just keep going. And first question is what? How do you face change? And every culture across time periods, across continents, etc., somebody is always asking this question, how do you face change? Yes, I mean, it's the foundational question because life moves. It, it's not static. And how are you going to move with it? And then once you walk us through the next three questions. So once you are in a change process or, 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 or you're in a growth process, the next thing you're going to hit are obstacles. It's inevitable. It, it's not even, it's just, it's just part of the process. And there, there are going to be conflicts and obstacles that you have to navigate your way through. Or if you become paralyzed, you're going to sort of go back to go and have to start all over again. Mm-hmm. But if you navigate your way through the obstacles and the conflicts, you get to the, to the third question, which is joy in union or what we might call an aha moment or an epiphany where the lights come on. And you go, ah, there's this bigger, larger world out there. This is more vital life that I can live. But that's just the third question. The fourth question is, how do you live that life? Because just knowing that there's this bigger life out there still doesn't prepare you to live it. And to live it is a process of trial and error. But you know, you know where you're headed and you know the experiment that you're, that you're uh, engaged in. But you've actually got to do it. Because if you just get the aha, and you don't do anything with it, it's back to go and start over again. And um, in the book, you talk about, was it Freudian sand, sand therapy, was Not it? Not Freud, but Jung. Okay. Jungian sand therapy. Sand play therapy. Which is what? <laughs> well, it, it's, it's this wild thing because it's not just Jungian. It also came out of Mahayana Buddhism. Big Second big word for the day. Yeah. And uh, it basically is, says that there's a wisdom place in you that knows what you need. And so I used to have a room in my house in Santa Fe with about 5,000 little objects and these two sand trays. And people would come in and they would make a series of images in the sand. And they would be making them over weeks or months or a couple of people as part of years. Thera- as part of therapy. Yes, but they're not directed about what to do. But what happens is, is that they begin to tell a story from scene to scene to scene. There's something, there's a story that's going on underneath, which is not usually what the person is thinking about as they make these images. They were giving themselves in my anthropology, they're giving themselves a great initiation. They moved through the four questions, but not because I was telling them to do it. Okay. So you're working with people. They're coming to you for guidance, therapy, help. And you essentially say, tell me your story. And here are some implements, tools. Here's yes. some sand you can draw and make images in. Yes. Tell me your story. Yes. And your observation was that given a blank slate, people tell a story that is these four movements. Exactly. Like it's inherent within all of us. Exactly. Exactly. 
So people listening right now, if we're all at some point in one of these four movements. Primarily, and you're, you're in all four movements at once, too, to make it a little bit more complicated. <laughs> we're all... But life is not linear. Exactly. And it's, it's, it's this wild spiral, but probably right now you've got a question in your life which is more to the forefront, and the others are sort of more in the background. So this is the person who's like, I sense some challenges coming. I sense a restlessness, a sense like there's some next thing I got to go do. I got to build it. I got to leap. Right. I got to risk. I got to... Secondly would be, I, I'm, I'm in the heat. I'm in the battle. I'm in conflict. I'm in loss. I'm in pain. The thing, things are falling apart. I'm getting hit. The waves are holding me under. Right. Nice little nod yeah, to last yes, week. Yes, yes. And, and I'm sitting here nodding, nodding, nodding. You can't and then thirdly might be that transcendent moment when you've, you've made it through, you've seen something, you've been broken open and yet more light is shining. You see things. It's like you wake up from the dark night of the soul. Life is more radiant. Uh, it didn't kill you. It made you stronger. It, absolutely. I mean, <laughs> and, I, and then fourth, would be this sense like you have a role to play, something to contribute. You, there's something that has happened to you that you feel this compulsion or need or passion to give back, to contribute, to serve, to love. And But what? how do you do that? What does that look like? Exactly. Because at that third transcendent moment where you just you, you get this radiant, vital life that's in you, you still don't know how to go out in the world and live it. Mm-hmm. And you're going to have to go out in the life, and and it's going to be experimenting. It's going to be you'll go down a road and find up. This is a dead end. Back up. Try this. Do it this way. So it's just, it's a it's a wild experiment. This what I call the fourth path, about how to live this radiance. It's interesting when I think about my own experiences as a as a teacher um, for like what what twenty years I've been giving talks, sermons, and afterwards, I always am there to talk to people, and it strikes me how, though, when I first read your book, how many people, I think about it now, their question's always one of those four. It's always one of the four. Yes. <laughs> Extraordinary. Okay. So let's, oh, sorry. No. There's so much there, I don't know where to start. Let's now talk about, so you're observing this. You're realizing there's a fourfold pattern to human experience. Right, I mean, and just to give everyone listening an anchor point, here was the first place that I heard about this foreness. I was an undergrad at the University of Notre Dame, and Joseph Campbell came every spring to lecture in the theology department for oh, a week. You listened to Joseph Campbell? Yeah. Oh, I didn't. I mean, I was a, I was I was a young kid, and I didn't actually even know what I was what I was getting. But what right. he kept saying is, "There's this great story, and it's got four parts. You hear the summons. I call that the question about facing change. Yeah. You you have obstacles. I call that moving through suffering. You receive the boon or the gift. I call that joy and union. And then you have to return to community and live it out. And I call that maturing in service. But he's the first one who gave me an idea about this foreness, about the journey, and about the questions. 
1971, I'm sitting there and I'm like, is there a connection between what he's talking about and the Gospels? Right. And so how did that, how did that then come about? Well, because two things happened at Notre Dame in the early 70s for me. Joseph Campbell and all this new research which had come out about the fact that the early church, early Christians, read the four Gospels in a sequence. It wasn't just as we do, pick up and read. I mean, every word of every line of the text has got grace and wisdom in it. But I, it's like they read this thing in a very definite sequence. And I started wondering, is there a larger story that the four tell? Is there a larger story that the four tell? And is this any way connected to what Campbell is talking about in terms of the great hero, heroine's journey? And I, and I kept, for 30 years, I kept chewing this. I, I, I kept wondering, um, I, I tried to force it. I tried to force an answer. And it wasn't until the late 90s and another book that gave me the key. And I was like, ah, oh, the early Christians were reading the Gospels in a sequence because they understood that Matthew is the first chapter Mark is the second chapter, John's the third chapter, and Luke's the fourth chapter. And there's a larger story that the four tell. Because <laughs> we in our, the Bible now, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Right. The first Christians read it, Matthew, Mark, John, John Luke, Luke, because they believe the four Gospels were the fourfold pattern. Right, and they never spoke about Gospels, plural. They only spoke about Gospels, singular. They knew, my belief, they knew that these four tell one story. They knew that we weren't looking at four different lives of Jesus, but we were looking at the life of Jesus as it has four graces to tell us about how do we live today. Which is... Totally different than those like awkward attempts to make all the chapters line up when yes. people like yes. This so is, if you're new to the, if you're new to the Bible or whatever, sometimes people take the four different stories of Jesus' life and they try to like cram all the chapters together to make like this is what he did on Tuesday at noon basically. And when you yeah. read those, uh, you're like ah that doesn't feel right. But you're saying at a deep level at like um, mythic in the more than true literally true level. They saw this fourfold sequence and they read the Gospels. Okay, in a minute we're going to get to yeah. why is the order different now. Yeah, so yeah, tell, yeah, me yeah. About, tell me about how the Gospel of Matthew uniquely, and in your book when you talk about the first century context, I could not believe that everybody isn't taught this from the get-go. Yeah, me too. So, so the but context let, of, the, of yeah, Matthew. Well, so let, let just one more piece about this. Um, for people, let's think about, we're going to think about each Gospel as the collection and the stories of Jesus telling us about one of the questions. So let's look at Matthew as here's everything that Jesus taught us about facing change. From the first line of Matthew to the end of Matthew, what, what organizes this text is Jesus' teachings about how we're going to face change. And here's what we think we know about where the gospel was composed. We think it was composed in the great city of Antioch. Mm. Uh, shortly after, somewhere four to five years after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. 
what's the, what's the discretion, destruction of the temple got to do with us? Because for them, it was, they thought, the end of their, their life as they knew it. Now, how many of us don't have a moment where we think our life is at an end, where everything that we've known about our life is at an end, and that it happens sometimes suddenly. We feel like we get pushed into a dark place and we don't know where we are and we don't know how we got here and we don't know how to get out of it. That's how the Christian Jewish community in Antioch was feeling when Rome destroyed the temple and massacred the Jewish priesthood. Many people in at that moment thought it was the apocalypse. They thought that God had ripped up the covenant with Abraham and there was nothing left to do but get ready for end times. And whether it's a difficulty in our marriage, whether it's a difficulty with our children, whether it's an economic downturn in our country, or whether it's planetary ecological danger, all of us come to these moments where a temple comes crumbling down and we're not prepared for it. And we can open the text of Matthew as the grace and the wisdom about how we can enter what other people think of as an end moment, but we can come to know that the end moments are actually a beginning moment. This is how it starts over. Oh man, now what particular passages in Matthew inform this understanding? Well, I mean, besides all of them. Besides all of them, <laughs> yes. All right, well, let's just, let's just start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. That in, in the, the Roman Catholic liturgy, uh, we bury the genealogy um, at the first Mass of Christmas Eve, and then we never read it because it's the children's Mass, and so we move on to the shepherds. But this genealogy is so beautiful, if you can get beyond all the, the male names in it. It starts by giving us these very strange texts like Tamar. We're going to tell the story of Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus the Christ. Because Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and seduces her father-in-law. Well, she dresses like a prostitute and she stays outside the temple and she's praying to God that God will lead her father-in-law, Judah, to come lie with her <laughs> so that she can be welcomed back into the family of the line uh, of Abraham and produce sons. And yes, we've got all these strange moments. Mm -hmm. The way that the genealogy tells the story of David David, it says, the, the line is, King David. And then the very next line is we hear about, not King David, but we hear about David, who is the father of, um, who, who lies with Bathsheba. And uh, essentially uh, participates in the murder. And here we go from King David to a murderer and an adulteress. And what, why would Matthew give this story of the genealogy to a people who feel like they're at the end times? He's like, look, this is your history. You are a people who know that end times are not end times, they're beginning times. Whenever you feel like you're up against it, and the only thing is 
to think that that this is an end time and I'm just going to lay down and wallow in this end time and prepare for it all to go to 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 death. Mm-hmm. No. No. That's that's not that's not who we are. That's not our story. And this is it, it's so beautiful in Matthew because Matthew gathers together all of these images of darkness but says it's not about darkness it's just about the darkness is where we start it's not where we end see i'm always always struck with the the ways in which in modern western world people completely misunderstand what the bible is and it's caught up in all sorts of ridiculous debates about whether or not it happened or literal or not or or like i'm so bored with the genealogies as opposed to real people real places real times and the reason i would say the first question to ask of any passage is simply why did people bother to write this down and that right away in matthew he's saying to people because if you're a good jew in the first century jerusalem and the temple is the center of your world it it everything hinges it it guarantees god's presence yes and, and now people can say, I don't relate. Yes, you do. You have a bunch of other things that guarantee blessing or favor. Like we, we just have different temples. Yes. But this temple is torn down, priesthood slaughtered. Everything you know to be everything you can trust and rely on is gone. And Matthew opens the story with what appears to be a boring list of names, but it's actually, let me remind you of all of the people from your tribe right. who have had everything fall apart for them. Right. And then he brings us to the meditation on Joseph. Because Joseph here, now he's not telling the historical story of Jesus' birth alone. He's telling the inner story of where the Christ is in, in us in a, in a change moment. And Joseph is the rightful meditation. Because Joseph is the good enough fa- father, the good enough man. He's been blessed by God, he thinks, to... to uh, to now betroth Mary, the fair maiden of the village. And we need to, Mary's of the priestly class. This is, this, this is a royal wedding in Judaism. Joseph of the line of David and Mary of the priestly class. And now. Oh, but they're, some, always, but they're always portrayed as sort of hick. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, no, 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 yeah, but not in Matthew, not in Matthew. This is, these are the two who've got everything going for them. And now Mary is found with child, which means her life is trashed in the Jewish idiom for a priestly woman to be uh, pregnant out of wedlock. And Joseph has got this huge dilemma. Do I take Mary or do I, in his gentleness, quietly divorce her? Because if he takes Mary, he's got to go against everything in Semitic tradition that he's been raised. I'm a first-generation Lebanese. I'm a Semite. And I'm sure that before I was born, my father was whispering to me in utero, you honor me your whole life. You honor me your whole life. That's the first obligation of a Semitic son. Joseph now has got to go against his father and his tribe and his rabbi and, and, and say, no, 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 I, I'm going to do that which I was told my whole life I can't do. I'm going to follow some new revelation, some new message, some new grace of God in my life, 
and say, yes, I can take Mary. And if he does, we know the rest of the story. There's a reason that Mary and Joseph are raising their child in Nazareth. They've been thrown out of Bethlehem. They've got the big scarlet letter on them because nobody understood that he was following an inner prompting of God that was going to be wider than the tribal understandings he grew up with. It's evolving consciousness. It's evolving consciousness. And every one of us, when we're at that moment of evolving consciousness, has got to break what we think is a law that can't be broken. But as Oh, wait, we, wait, wait. Say that again. Say that again. We have to break a law that we think can't be broken. <laughs> God is compelling us to do that. But we've also got to do it with humility. And we're going to, as we go down the spiritual journey, we're going to find later how that law is confirmed in a deeper way. Ah, uh, you break it only to discover the deeper roots yes. of its ex initial yes. existence. Yes. You just come at... Okay, you did something very interesting there, especially for all the people who have all of the endless shorts and a bunch questions about, did it happen, did it not? Do I take it literally? What about that? You said the Joseph story is about an inner Christ. Yes. You, you didn't sidestep. You transcended all of the endless debates people have about taking this book seriously or not. You moved us to a whole nother place. Tell me about when you say the inner, the inner Christ. Right. What, be, what do you be, mean? Well, let's, what I'm doing here is I'm saying that the, this text of Matthew is written to the pressing spiritual question of people who already know about resurrection. And they want to know, okay, now I know, I know about the life of Jesus in me. How do I live it? Mm -hmm. And so their question is not, well, tell me what the video cam back in Bethlehem would have shown me there that day. Their question is, how in this moment when the world has turned dark, how do I find the Christ here in this moment in my life? Mm -hmm. And the meditation is, oh, you've got to spiritually do what Joseph did back then, which is to listen very deeply to, to where the Christ is going to be reborn or re-energized or grow larger in you in this difficult moment. And when you say the Christ, how would you articulate, we have our pre-Easter Jesus, dusty sandals, yes. disciples, Nazareth, hugging lepers, hearing the cry, <laughs> and then we have, I'm always struck with how the New Testament writers they don't talk about his birth. They don't really talk that much about miracles. They don't really talk much about the disciples. They talk about the cosmic Christ. Yes. An, an energy, a force, a life surging through the universe right. that is revealed in this rabbi from Nazareth. How, how do you, um, you know what I mean? When, when they're talking about this Jesus, they talk about something as big as the universe. How do you? Well, they do because... Uh, well, it's like, oh, Rob. Come on. Let's how much, go. How much time do we have today? Plenty. Um, <laughs> so, all right. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, let's, let's, uh, let, let's talk about the limitations of the disciples. Yes. And let's talk about what Paul did. Okay. Um, and I'm going to talk about this in terms of organizational development. Oh, of course. Yeah. Nice. 
uh, that was part of my psychological training, organizational development. Uh, your organization is going to go forward if it can reach the third generation. The people that are gathered around the original founder of an organization are very poor communicators because they get, they, they see the personality of the founder. They see how the founder, he or she does things. They know how the founder laughed. They know his mannerisms or her mannerisms about how she eats, how she tells a story, et cetera, et cetera. They inherently do not know how to extrapolate, how to grow larger the vision of the founder to people that the founder didn't touch personally. It always takes your second and especially the third generation who now no longer knows the founder, but knows the heartbeat of the message and how to take it forward to people and situations and things where the founder didn't go. The original ones around Jesus had an enormous gift of, of seeing him in the flesh and knowing his personality and knowing who he touched and how he touched them. They had, a, they had a larger limitation. Who didn't have that limitation? Paul. Or maybe it was Pauline or James or Sarah or whoever, but Paul is the reason that we're sitting here because Paul got the direct transmission from the source of the message without all the personality questions. Paul knew how to go out and translate and touch people about now, not about history, but about now. History guarantees to us it's not a fable. But we've become so tied to the historical, what did Jesus know? What did he look like? What did he know? When did he know it? What did he say? And we've forgotten that the power is now. The power is always now. The power is, how can you live a more vital life now? What do these stories say about now? Not what they said necessarily about then, etc. Which I, is I, why I, fundamentalism always sort of turns on itself. Yeah. It's yeah. because it operates from a pure state of perfection somewhere in the past, 1952, 2000, whenever it is. And if we could just get back there, if we could just take this country back, there's a political dimension as well, right? But it, 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 it operates yeah. under there's some perfect thing in the past if we could just get back there. Yeah. And the question, you know, we just need to do it like the early church did it, which is, no, we don't. It's now. It's now. <laughs> it's always now. I love it. Yeah. And, and all that stuff in the early church sort of gives us some guide ropes so we don't go off the rails. Yeah. But it can't give us the heart and the truth. It can just tell us where not to go. But it's like we've got to, within this, within this playing field, we've got to find the now. And that's what Paul did. And it, I'm a Lebanese Semite. And there's, there's, a, a, there's a, an Arabic saying that was put on my heart. I think if my father was speaking into me in utero, someone was also putting this on my heart. And the saying is, don't seek to know what the ancients knew. Seek the source. Seek the source. That's how Jesus came directly from the source and could speak the source. And now today, 
through Jesus, we can go to the source and speak to the now. But we keep like wanting to know what those people back then knew rather than understand that there's a direct door to the source here. Which is why people always say, I'm not into doctrines and dogmas. Yes. I always, whenever I get a question about doctrine and dogma, I always begin with, all doctrine began with mystical experience. Somebody somewhere had an experience of the divine. Right. And they tried to put language on it, and now you are multiple generations later, you have the words and the forms, but you didn't have the experience. So no wonder it's lame and, and lifeless and sort of insipid yeah. sometimes. Um, it is about encounter with source. Right. And if you don't have it, that, it doesn't matter how complicated and impressive your structures are. Right. And so, I mean, just to circle back sort of where, where we started, you know, these gospel texts don't get written until after Paul has done his work for 25 years to change the conversation. We, we have been reading these gospel texts like they were the, the, the first eyewitnesses accounts of Jesus writing things down as things were going along rather than recognizing all of these gospel texts are written through Paul's idea about source. And the source changes what we understand about the stories. So every word of every one of these four texts is about resurrection. It's not about resurrection at the end of the text. That's what the disciples would have written because they were following along the life of Jesus to get to death and resurrection at the end. But no, now through this lens, I'm saying from the first line of Matthew to the last line of Matthew is about how through the vital resurrection you can face change. And here are the stories in the meditations that teach you how to move in and move through change. And likewise with Mark about moving through suffering and likewise with John about joy and likewise about Luke about service. Every word is about resurrection because once you've heard about resurrection at the end of a gospel text, it's like, well, okay, where do I go through? Where, where next? I know where the story goes. It's like Paul Harvey. Tell me the rest of the story. Oh. Okay, so so that's question one. That's Matthew. Talk to us just a bit about question two in the Gospel of Mark. Um, Gospel of Mark, most everyone will agree, is coming out of the uh, city of Rome. We think it's coming very shortly after Nero has condemned all the Christians in Rome to die. Uh, he's condemned us for uh, burning uh, the great city of Rome in the summer of uh, July of, of not 1964, <laughs> July of 64. Um, and so what, what we see in this text is a community which is under the, the uh, condemnation of execution. And this incredible gospel text is their prayer as they face death, as the prayer that their family and their community is being ripped apart in paranoia and, and conflict. Uh, people are turning against each other because the Roman soldiers are going door to door and they're saying, are you a believer in the Christus? And if you say yes, you and your family are gonna be taken to the Circus Maximus. The Colosseum is still 30 years from being built. You're gonna be staked to the floor and you're gonna be fed to starving dogs. And the Romans, practice how to torture people very slowly to death. They didn't want it, they didn't want quick executions because they loved 
the bloodthirstiness of watching people scream and writhe uh, and then eventually die. And so they would kill children first and make the parents watch that, and then the parents would die. Now we can turn to the text of Mark, and we can see Mark is the meditation and the prayer about how you, through the power of the resurrection, from the very first note of Mark, how you too can move through a moment like unto death. Whether it's a physical death, whether it's a spiritual, emotional, a financial, a cultural, whether it's an ecological death. This is, this is a phenomenal present moment text of the teachings of the risen Jesus to us as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Uh, and so they would read this gospel as a guide. Here's how you face it. And what would they have picked up? What would they have, if there's a little, if you were to just to say somebody reading Mark who understood it this way, tell me, just give me a couple highlights, highlights, lowlights. How do you face suffering well? Um, I, I love the text. Of, let's take the first text of the crossing of the sea at night. Uh, Jesus puts the disciples in a boat uh, going across the Sea of Galilee, which is storm-ridden. Uh, storms come up on that sea suddenly. Uh, he knows that they're headed into the storm. And through the four crossings, what you see is Jesus ever more with some agitation uh, becoming impatient with the fact that we don't understand that God sends us into the storms and accompanies us in the storms to go through them, not to get out of them, not to have a Band-Aid put on, but so that we will grow um, more noble in the resurrection uh, by God's presence with us. And so whether, whether it's that or whether it's towards the end of Mark, where you see Jesus helping us understand the sense of alienation and the agony that comes in us when we feel so abandoned that actually we can feel abandoned and still know God's presence is with us, which is what happens in the garden scene, the Gethsemane scene in Mark. And then we see Jesus on the cross in Mark praying the great Jewish prayer, which every devout Jew prayed to have on their lips as they died, Psalm 22, which is a journey psalm. It, we're going to join Jesus in this moment and say, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you abandoned us? God can say that, we can say it, but that's not where the story ends. Read the text of Psalm 22. The, the evangelist doesn't need to put Psalm 22 in the text of Jesus on the cross any more than if somebody were dying today and said, Our Father who art in heaven, we know the rest of the story. Yes. And Psalm 22 doesn't stop with Jesus saying, My God, my God, why have you been me? It moves to the end, which says, God, there is no other reason to live because you hold everything you know the ardor of lovers. You know creation. You know the generations yet to come are going to give you praise for your justice, for your radiance, for your love. This is not a psalm that ends with abandonment. It starts with abandonment. And I used to be a hospital chaplain. 
I used to sit at 2.30 in the morning with people who every breath felt like a knife in their lung. I know how true the feeling of abandonment is. That's not where the story ends. It's just where the story begins. Mm. And so the nobility of Jesus on the cross in Mark is the nobility of every one of us who, by the power of the resurrection, can walk through the valley of the shadow of death with our head held high. Yes, I know abandonment. And right alongside that, I know the presence of the one who holds all time, who holds all future, who holds all now. And this is not the end. So, oh, so good. It's, it's as if Mark is saying, here's how to have dignity. Here's how to grieve. Um, there is a time and a place when you shake your fists to the heavens like skinny little antennas. Um, <laughs> like you, that's the name of a band, an album from a band from Canada. Um, you, it's as if he's saying there's the full spectrum of human experience, which includes rage against injustice, abandonment, anger against God, doubt, fear, insecurity, rage against the machine. Um, it's as if Mark says, here's to actually live in the world with a soul and with some dignity. If you don't have some shake your fists, existential angst, dark night of the soul, what's wrong with you? Bring it all. Bring it all. Bring it all. Not bring it on, bring it all. Yeah. Bring all of yourself. Every one of those places in yourself is the holy. And And that's how you get through this moment. You don't get through this moment by platitudes or cutting off or trying to make nice. It's fascinating if you said, like, think of all those websites of all those churches, like, to conquer the city for Christ or that if you're like actually our church one of our four pillars is learning how to suffer with dignity yeah yeah learning how to rage well yes learning how to grieve a friend of mine um do you know Peter Rollins I um don't know him I know his work Pete has this great riff he does on when Princess Diana died and all those flowers piled up in front of Buckingham Palace for days and days and days and he said why did her death surprise everybody with this massive outflow of grief we knew she was loved but not at that scale and he said it's because we live in culture in a culture that doesn't know how to grieve so we're all carrying this stuff around and a public figure dying robin williams get on the list it it's almost like a valve gets released and it gives mm. people mm. a way mm. to express mm. that which is just mm. almost like lurking mm. haunting Mm. them mm. some in their bones almost mm. Mm. and mark and your the, the premise which just so blew me away in the book is is the first christians were like these gospels are about teaching you how to live in the world with full flourishing and vitality and central to that is grief and pain and oppression and betrayal and so here's how you do it with your head held high right 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 Come on, Alexander Shia's in the house. <laughs> okay, third question, third gospel, third movement, uh, which would be John, the yes. transcendent moment when you, it's almost like you're broken to the point where light can now shine through. Or how, how do you talk about that? 
Well, and 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 to go back to the to the to the very last note of Mark, we're standing there at this empty tomb, and the women have left. And as the original text ended, they the angel had or the the young person had told them to go out and tell the disciples that Jesus has risen and has gone ahead of you to Galilee. And the text says, and, and the women left, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were overwhelmed and afraid. And so we, we end this text of the valley of the shadow of death with an empty tomb. There's no sighting of the risen one in the text. And then, like, and then you're going to turn the page and you're going to open John. And like, how does that happen? And that's exactly how it happens. Because the moment of the aha, the moment of the, the new vision, it doesn't happen continuously from where this, the, the walking through the valley of the shadow of death. It's like something comes, something wells up, something comes down, something changes in an instant that you can't have predicted five minutes before. And that's John. We turn the page and John opens with, here's the truth from before the first moment of time. Here's the truth that's in each moment of time. Here's the truth that's everywhere. Here's the truth that's in the cosmos. I mean, John is one of the most phenomenal texts. In my mind, it is the most phenomenal text ever revealed, ever composed. Because there's, there's, I come from the state of New Mexico, and we have a, a museum in, in New Mexico to UFOs. And <laughs> John's already answered the question for us. The cosmos is Christic in our metaphor. We, is there going to be intelligence in other parts of the cosmos? Certainly there's probably going to be intelligence in the other part of the cosmos. But the, John says, before the first moment of the cosmos, God breathed the Christ out into everything. God breathed the Christ out into everything. And so, as we move from the valley of the shadow of death, there is this moment again and again and again where we see it, we get it. From the smallest grain of sand to the stardust to the farthest, farthest galaxy out there, it's the visible Christ. It's everything that we can see is the visible evidence of the Christ. We can touch it, we can taste it, we can hear it, we can follow it, we can study it. And in our metaphor, everything that we're studying is the Christ. There's nothing, there's nothing in the universe which is separate from the Christ. That's the reality that John gives us. All things are yours. All things. As the writer says. Okay, so, so, so Mark ends at this very bloody, desolate human place. And then John explodes with uh, an electricity that the whole universe is plugged into. Right, right. Which I find, it's interesting because people lose their job and then later talk about how it was awful and yet out of that something was birthed. They go through a divorce and it's, it's just a hell on earth and yet it's out of that that, that something new gets birthed in them that leads to a whole nother reality and there's no there's no plan there's no timing people aren't like i knew everything was falling apart so i enacted a three-point plan of restoration no 
It's just, and then one day I'm driving to work and I realize how long am I going to carry this bitterness around? Right. I mean, the stories that I've heard right. a thousand times, it, there's no rhyme or reason or flow or plan or schedule it's, or workbook to it. It's discontinuous from, from the valley of the shadow of death. When, yes. when this experience happens, it just, it's, it's a lightning bolt. Yes, it's tears, it's, it's loneliness, it's isolation, it's questions, it's rock bottom, and then it's boom! Exactly. Stars, exactly. music. Exactly. exactly. I get it, I see it, something happened. Right. I mean, and, and that's, and, and I've lived this story so many times in my own life. I know, I know that I, I can't predict when it's going to happen, but I'm be, at this age, I'm beginning to trust that it yeah. will happen. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's what makes it what it, it it it's more than hope that I have for the planet right now. It's more than hope, because if I know this happens to me individually, and I see it happen in my friends and my family, I know that if we stay on the journey, there's going to be that moment for all of us that's gonna move us into another level of understanding and another way of resolving the problems we've got on the planet right now. Yes. Yeah, I love what you said about, it's almost like you become more familiar with the pattern because when I have sad days, low days, tired days, day I say days when I feel like we're losing. You know what I mean? Like it's well, just a couple I of headlines it. in the news. I know it. An awkward interaction with some, like, and there's that feeling you're carrying around some days like, where am I going to find the energy to keep going? I now know just be patient because at some point, some little thing is going to be a trigger and there will be joy and, oh my word, we're alive and we're here and we're going to be fine. Yeah. Yes. It's like you begin to identify the pattern in yourself of, yeah. wow, days that I'm having like this generally are followed or this week is often followed by one of those kind of weeks. Oh man. Okay, so, so so I mean faith for me is is walking the journey or walking the pattern. I know the contours of the pattern. I don't know when or how it's gonna happen, but I know the contours of the pattern. I know that Mark is gonna be followed by John. I know that winter is gonna be followed by spring. I yes. know it. Yeah. I can't chart it on a calendar, but I know it. Yeah, you know, that that great campaign out there. Things get better for gay and lesbian youth. That's that's that it's great. True. That it's true. <laughs> it's true for all of us. You know, one time I I gave a sermon and this there's this legendary theologian who happened to be in the audience and he comes up afterwards and he says, Rob, that was a magnificent sermon, and it had the added benefit of being true. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. Oh, such a great sort of kind yeah. of backhanded, but kind of awesome. Um, yeah. And and John, John is about because so much of John is about spirit. It's about these soaring metaphors and what sometimes sound like abstract ideas, but are actually the language, the poetry of the right. soul in a sense. But it's not. It's spirit and matter are together. Are together and have always been together. Yes. Always, always. We separate them out, yes. but not, it, they're always together. You know why? You can't study the cosmos without studying the Christ you in know our why? metaphor. It's because everything is spiritual. Ah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> okay. Yes. I want tickets. The, uh, on the house. <laughs> on the All house. Right. Guest list. Done. Um, 
Yes, yeah, so for John, as with all good quantum physics and the scriptures, matter and spirit are right, one. Right. There is so, no division, there is no boundary, there is right. no line. So John is always bringing back together two things that have been, in our limited understanding, been separated. Say more about that, please. Well, I mean, everything in John is about union. And the basic form of union is two that were apart have now come back together. So let's take this beautiful, like, set aside the prologue for a moment, which we could sit here for a week on. Let's look at the wedding at Cana. There are a couple of things about this wedding that we've lost because we lost the way the text was translated when we talked about Jesus naming Peter. Jesus names Peter and says, you're Petros. Most of our Bibles translate that as rock, for some reason, rather than stone, which it, every other time Petros appears in the Gospel of John, it gets translated stone. And what do we lose when we didn't say that Peter is naming, that Jesus is naming Peter a stone? Stone is the incorruptible substance. Everything in Judaism that's made of stone never has to be cleansed again. It doesn't, you can do your ritual washing of missing the mark in a stone vessel because the stone does not take on any contamination. Jesus has not just said to Peter, Jesus has said to every one of you, you are incorruptible substance. Spirit and matter are together in you and can never be separated. In our metaphor, maybe it'd be better to say your gold or your diamond. But, uh, yeah. but in their metaphor, it was stone. Okay, so now we come to the wedding and we've got these vessels there that are going to hold water. And what are those vessels made of? Yeah, stone. Stone. And how many are there? The number of the disciples. No. You know. Six. There's six <laughs> stone vessels holding water. And that six relates back to the sixth day of creation when God creates male and female and puts them in union. And let's open up male and female to perhaps talk about differing energy forms that come together, not just biology. Mm -hmm. Let's. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, Six is the metaphor of the Jewish flag, the six-pointed star of David. That's the joining of the downward-turning triangle for the feminine and the upward-turning triangle for the masculine. And so all of John is about this union of energies, whether it's yin-yang, black-white, male-female, however you want to talk about the opposites. This text is about that every opposite adheres to union. And we are all in the process of taking the base experience of what we need for life, water, and moving it to an elixir of joy. Oh, <laughs> say more about that. Well, I mean, the, the life of the resurrection is not about subsistence alone. Subsistence is where we start. But resurrection is about joy. It's about vitality. It's about creativity. It's about radiance. It's about your heart bursting forth in love and service for self and other, for the world. Mm, so John is saying, you are here 
in a Trinitarian universe, not just for survival, but for thriving. Thrival. For thriving. There is an overflow to everything. And this is about how to live with that overflow in yourself. So so new life is spilling over. Each of our lives are as abundant as the cosmos. This Once cosmos again, uni- is expanding, expanding, and expanding. Once again, uniting the personal and the universal. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Always the union of polarities. Always the bringing together of that which appears to be two different things. Right. So when people and- suffer and this thing is bad and I want nothing to do with it and these things over here are good and then you get broken open and all of a sudden that thing that was so horrible is actually producing something good in you and all of a sudden it, it, everything belongs, yes. to quote our friend Ab- Richard. Yeah, Moore, absolutely. To that-, that which you previously... So it's when people have guilt and shame about their past and they have a, tr- a, a moment of breaking and crushing and transformation and all of a sudden that which they've kept at a distance they've kept at arm's length from their past gets integrated into the present and all that horrible bad then becomes it is celebrated it becomes a a pinpoint of grace that explodes from there yes come on and the the, in the house keep going (laughs) well and, and jesus the christ in john is this magnificence of the cosmos. It's like Jesus the Christ in John is this this royal presence of all time, of all people, of every stardust to to planet. Uh, It's the great truth that has always endured. And Jesus moves through this text um, ordaining everything. Nothing happens in John except in the moment that Jesus the Christ says it can happen. And we have the great honor to be brother and sister to that reality. Which now helps me because what people have done, for many people, the Gospel of John was used to validate a tribal Jesus who is sending everybody else to hell. Mm-mm-mm. I mean, the very Mm-mm-mm. verses Mm-mm. often, John 14, Mm-mm. John 3, Mm-mm. oftentimes, you know what I mean? Oftentimes, I the verses are used to be like, hey, if you don't become a Christian and come to our church and believe in our religion, then you're going to go burn like everybody else. When in fact, this is a story about the cosmic Christ who holds all things together, who is surging through the universe, bringing all of these polarities together in one cohesive whole. Yeah. I, want, I want people listening and, and, and you, I want you to do one thing. I want you to read the text of John. And every time you read the word world, yeah, I want you to put in unreflectiveness, unawareness. God didn't God so loved our unreflectiveness, our unawareness, that God sent the Christ to wake us up. Oh, come on! Over and over and over and always, because there's always a deeper awareness, there's always a greater mystery, there's always more vitality to live for. We just keep waking up. Mm. I always, when people ask me what I do for my work, there's a story about this man named Jacob who falls asleep by the side of the road. He has this massive dream and he wakes up and he says, surely the divine was in this place and I, I wasn't aware of it. Yeah. 
and that waking up is the dominant story of the scriptures yeah. all the way back to early on yeah. he wakes up and he says whoa there was more going on here the whole time i'm just now seeing it the disciples fall asleep in the garden. How can you, can you guys not stay awake? Yeah. It's like yeah. again and again and again. It's one of the big stories. Now, now, here, now, now. It's always oh, about now. I am literally raising Woo! my arms in the air. I'm, I'm so happy that we are talking about this. Now, fourth question then. Yes. Which takes us Matthew, Mark, John, then Luke. Yes. So the question is, the the restless, how do we face change, something's coming. Matthew, Mark, obstacles, suffering, oppression, the wave is holding you under. Conflict. John is the moment of transformation, is the moment when the blinders are removed, when you wake up, when you're broken open enough and there's enough pieces on the floor that actually something new can be made out of that. And you can look back and make sense. And you can now, look back. Now you know where it was all leading. Ah, you look back and go, oh, at the time I was confused and lost yeah, yeah, and a mess yeah, and yeah, yeah, crying yeah. in my pillow every night. Yeah. And now I realize, yeah. oh, something was coming out of that. Something was being forged in me. Yeah. Which leads us to Luke, which is how do I serve? Yes. How do I give? It's this. How do, tell me about that. Well, I, I want to start again at the end of John. Uh, oh, interesting. Jesus and Peter at the lake. Uh, Peter, like, I mean, Jesus is like, Peter, do you love me? Well, of course I love you. I've just, I've had this great retreat. You know, I've been listening to Rob Bell. I'm, I'm on a high. <laughs> you know, all the epiphanies are, go feed the sheep. Go take care of the lambs. What's this a metaphor for in the first century? And how do we, can we understand that today? In the first century, Shepherds were brigands, thieves, maybe rapists, maybe pedophiles. They were the least of society, and they were removed from society. They were sent out to work in the fields, so they would smell like sheep. And smelling like sheep was better than having a bell around your neck, because if they came into a village, the smell preceded them, and you knew who you were dealing with and avoid them. So this end of this incredibly magnificent text of John is about, okay, get down and dirty. If you can't get down and dirty in your life, what's the magnificence for? Go into all the places in your inner life, in your family, in the world that are cracked and and ravenous and hungry and in tremendous despair and need and go and take the smell of resurrection to them. Go and take the fact that they too can go on this journey that you've been on, that they too can face change, that they too can move through the time of conflict and suffering, that they too can come into the time of radiance and epiphany, and they too can go forward and serve. Go and serve that. Don't tell me the name only of the God that you praise. Go and do it. Oh, so good. And so and so Luke opens up. Now, Luke, Luke is written to this moment in the Mediterranean world where all the Christian communities have been, we've been told that we can't be Jews anymore. And the moment that we're told that we can't be Jews anymore, the Roman Empire comes down on us and, and is going to just full bore on us because we are 
doing exactly what the emperor was afraid of. We're talking about social justice. We're talking about increased respect for women. We're talking about that slaves um, have souls. They're human beings. They should. They deserve care and support. We're talking about that if you have some money, you should share that with those who have less. We're talking about healthcare. We're talking. We're talking all immigration, the nuclear war, absolutely, global warming. You name it. And for all of those reasons, Christians are now on a downward spiral in the Roman Empire because we are now going to be made criminals. So that baptism and being a follower of the way is not going to get the emperor's slap on the back for us and applauding us. It's not going to get us good schools or, or great neighborhoods. We're, we're going to have to go forth in the world and serve without bitterness serve without looking for applause. We're just going to do the small, nitty-gritty work of changing the culture of an empire. And we're not going to change the culture of an empire by changing the laws alone or by electing the right politicians alone. We're going to do it by transforming people's hearts to a larger reality called love and justice. And we're going to do that for 200 years at the point of being killed. We're going to do it. We just refuse to stop doing it. We refuse to stop doing it with little concern about what it's going to get me because we know that we have to take care of the planet and we have to take care of the next generation. And this is how you do it. And so I, Luke and Acts of the Apostles if I could rename a text, this gospel would be the gospel of those who were sent. This is the gospel. Luke and Acts is the gospel of those who were sent to practice resurrection. Go practice resurrection everywhere. Go practice a new vital life for yourself and others. Mm. Mm. And for you, it always comes back to resurrection as a way of life like you haven't spent the past hour arguing for us about a guy rising from the dead you just keep coming back to a whole way of living in the world yes. that every one of us can enter into yes yes and and you know i'm a christian and jesus is my doorway that jesus is that personal intimate experience of the christ that I, that I can feel walking alongside me. What I am most concerned about is we need to practice the journey. Jesus the Christ is how I know the journey. Mm -hmm. You may be listening to this. You may be a Buddhist. You know the journey because the four gospel texts that I've been talking about are the four noble truths of Buddhism. You may be Jewish listening to this. The four gospel texts are uh, an amplification of the journey coming out of the, coming out of Egypt. Yeah. You, you may be um, a Native American and you know this because it's part of the initiation rites that you went through. It's part of the process of the vision quest and the being tutored by an elder. You know this journey if, 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 if you're involved in shamanic work. Um, the shamanic journey is this same pattern. And so what I'm describing is 
at the first moment of time when God put forth the Christ into every grain of sand, he put forward the Christ as a personal relationship. He also put forward the Christ as a pattern. And that, that, that same pattern is how a plant grows. That same pattern is how we grow. That same pattern is how quantum and chaos theory is describing the laws of the universe. This is how I understand spirit and matter are one because it all moves in a pattern that we feel personally as Jesus, but we also understand as the Christ. I love it. Now, you go around the world. This fourfold pattern you called quadratus. Yes. Quadratus. I'm going to pronounce it like that. Mm, okay. Because I always mispronounce it. Um, and you go around and you go into communities and you teach them the quadratus. Yes. And I can only imagine that it elicits all sorts of responses from people. Yes. Because they, it, it gives sense. It gives... Well language to their experience my my very very most favorite thing is when people just come up to me and say this makes sense yeah the gospels aren't a great incomprehensible mystery although they have a great mystery in them it's like oh these were people asking the four great questions and jesus was giving them the the practical answer about how to live it so good. And even though Jesus is my way into the great source, Jesus isn't an exclusive reality shutting out all the rest of the world's wisdom. Jesus is the brother and the sister to every great wisdom that's on the planet and in the, in the cosmos. If you're one of my favorite friends right now is, works for NASA, and I keep he keeps sending me these wonderful emails about how. This helps him understand how he's doing the work of Christ at NASA. Oh, awesome. Okay, here, here's what I'm going to do. I think we need to do a second podcast somewhere down the road next time we meet up. Because this is, I want people to go get your book. It's Heart and Mind or the other title. The book is so good. It has two titles. The Hidden Power of the Gospels. Alexander Shia, S-H-A-I-A. You've... You've given me so and, much to think about, and I've even read the book. So, and Heart and Mind is is um, uh, on Amazon Kindle worldwide. Oh, good. So anybody can get it. Yes. Um, so I'm gonna just have everybody's gonna go out and get the book, and then how if they want you to come talk about this in their community, how would they get a hold of you? Okay. Website. Q U A D quad. R A. T O S Q U A D. Quadratos.com. Send me an email. Okay, great. So they can bring you in and you can walk a whole community through this. Cool. And, oh, fantastic. And then next time we'll talk about your upbringing and story because it fascinates me. We'll talk about quantum physics and we will talk about Jesus Christ. We will talk about the universal and the particular and how you how people, particularly people who've been raised with no background in sort of a spiritual tradition or who were raised, there's a thing happening through Jesus and everybody else is in trouble. 
we'll just sort of explore some of that because there's a lot there we could talk about. But thank you so much. Oh, I've been looking forward to this for so long. And like. you blew my mind. And I knew you would. And uh, everybody, Alexander Shia, get the book. And um, then sometime down the road on another Robcast, Alexander will come back and we'll keep it going. Much love, everybody. Grace and peace.